Welcome to the FBCLB podcast, where you'll find the preaching of Dave Delaney, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Long Beach. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bibles this morning, go with me to the book of Matthew in chapter number 9. Matthew in chapter number 9 this morning. We're taking a break from our study in the book of Mark. Lord willing, and with God's help, we'll jump back into Mark next week. Our Bible preaching and teaching method at First Baptist Church is simply to go next chapter, next verse, and walk through God's Word together in that fashion. However, there are some moments uh, in our church's life where we need, and it behooves us, to just take a moment, set it aside, break away from our normal schedule, and turn our attention to God's Word in different areas for what we may be thinking through as a church. What we're thinking through this weekend as a church is we're thinking through the cause of evangelizing the world, specifically as it relates to missions. Now, this morning we'll take up our faith uh, promise uh, commitment cards. The faith promise is what you and I individually and what we are together corporately committing by faith to give to the cause of evangelizing the world. It's how we support missionaries here at our church. It's how we ensure that the gospel goes out, not just here in Long Beach, but that it goes out all over the globe. But what we'll also do this evening is we'll take time to consider bringing on to our missions family these four missionaries that are with us. I want you to be here tonight. It's very important in the history and the life of a church to gather together and think through these kind of things. In Matthew chapter number 9, if you found your place, Matthew chapter 9, look at verse number 35, and we're going to go down to verse number 38, and what you're going to find here in this passage is you're going to find the priorities that Jesus has in prayer. The priorities that Jesus has in prayer. I wonder what your prayer priorities are. In college, I, I kept a prayer journal. How many of you have kept a prayer journal at some point or another in your life? Maybe even do so right now. Right. It wasn't that long ago I came across that prayer journal from my freshman year at college. I wanted to know what was I praying about as a 19-year-old freshman, right? It was kind of embarrassing. I find myself praying about three things mainly. Over and over, these three things always showed up. I was praying for a family member that was sick. I, I was praying for a church that I could go pastor one day. Little did I know, I was praying for you, right? And I was praying for a girl by the name of Amanda Marie Epperson. That's who I was praying for. And she became mine, right? Those are the three things I kept praying for over all through my freshman, sophomore year. I was praying for those three things. But I was strongly convicted because, you know, it doesn't take it doesn't take the Spirit of God to want those three things. It's not wrong to pray for those things. In fact, the Bible teaches us this, that we should cast all of our care upon Him. Why? Because He cares for us. Amanda is fantastic at this because she prays for all the small things. I've told you this before, but my boys know Amanda prays for all the little things in life. Lord, help the Amazon truck driver to show up on time tomorrow. And boys will call me, they're away at college, they'll call me and they'll go, Dad, we, wh where's mom? I said, well, why do you need mom? Because we need her to pray for something for us. So, you know, I can pray, I'm a pastor, it's like my job, you know. 
I know we want mom to pray. Why? Because they know mom prays for the little things in life. There's nothing wrong with praying for the little things. We ought to do that. But we ought not only pray for the little things. If Jesus answered every prayer request that you ever had, if Jesus answered all your prayer requests from last week, how many people would be saved as a result of that? How many of your neighbors would have come to know Christ as their Savior as a result of you praying for them? It's not wrong to pray for little things. We ought to. But we also need to be reminded of what our priorities in prayer should be. So when Jesus prays, what does he pray for? And when Jesus tells us to pray, what does he say that we ought to pray for? Look at Matthew chapter number 9. Look at verse number 35. Jesus went out, or Jesus went about all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted, were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. And then Jesus saith unto, then saith he, so then says Jesus to his disciples, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray. Pray ye. Look, look here, here's what he's saying. You should pray for this. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he, he's the only one that can do it, but that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. What are the priorities that we should have in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, use your word in our lives. And in Jesus' name we pray. And all the church said together, Amen. Amen. In this passage, you are seeing a record of the collision of Jesus' deity and Jesus' humanity. It's a collision of both of his natures. Jesus in his deity is going about the area. He's teaching. He's preaching, the Bible says in verse 35. He's also, in verse 35, healing, notice, every sickness and every disease among the people. Jesus is going around, encountering individuals, teaching, preaching, and performing miracles which validates the teaching and preaching ministry that he has. But here, Jesus recognizes that in his humanity, it, in his physical nature, he will not have the opportunity or the ability to be able to heal everyone. Jesus cannot go around all of the world and touch everyone who needs a healing or a miracle. And the reason is, is because Jesus, although he is 100% God, is also 100% man. 
And so Jesus, as God, can touch anyone and everyone, this is what this passage teaches us, and heal them. But Jesus, as 100% man, has limited himself to time and space. And Jesus put on flesh for us. And so Jesus, he has a collision here where he recognizes that in his humanity, he cannot get all the way around the globe and touch everyone that needs it. And so what does he do? He calls his disciples together. He empowers them. He instructs them on how his work is going to get done in the world. Can we think of that for just a few moments this morning? How does the work of Jesus get done in this world? And here is how. Jesus' mission is accomplished through us. Jesus' mission is accomplished through you and through me. That the way that the work of Christ goes forward is through individuals, through Christians, through believers, through followers of Jesus who willingly obey what the Lord has called us to do. And so notice a couple things about Jesus' ministry here. Three things about the mission of Jesus in the world. His mission is one of compassion. His mission is one of service. And his mission is one of prayer. Those three ideas right here from, from Matthew chapter 9 this morning. Look with me. His mission is one of compassion. So look at verse 36. When he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted. They were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. In other words, Jesus saw beyond their outward appearance. Jesus saw their heart. And this verse teaches us that from his divine vantage point, he saw three things in their heart. What did he see? He saw that they were fainting. He saw that they were scattered. And he saw that they were like sheep with no shepherd. Now, instead of going into a deep explanation of what it means to faint, be scattered, and be as a sheep with no shepherd. Instead of doing that, let me just reduce it down to one word. Here's what Jesus saw. He saw people who were lost. He saw people who were lost. They were separated from God because of their sin. Now we need to understand this. That sin cannot... And sin will not be accepted in the presence of God. As, as very modern people, this is what we assume about God. That God will overlook our sin. God will not and God cannot overlook our sin. And God won't do that because he is God. He is holy. And as a holy and a righteous God, he cannot just overlook sin. And yet we try to convince ourselves that this is the way that God will treat us. That God will overlook our sin because our sin isn't as bad as someone else's sin. We all know people who have done things much worse than we've done. 
In fact, we even say things like that. We say, well, nobody's perfect, and at least I'm not as bad as her. Or nobody's perfect, but at least I'm not as bad as him. And I might have done some really bad stuff, but at least I didn't do, at least I didn't do that. And yet the reality is that although we may try to compare ourselves among ourselves, even in our comparison of sin, it does not eliminate the reality of our own sin. That we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every one of us. Even the person you're listening to talk this morning has sinned. And don't say amen too loud on that point, all right? But we've all sinned. And even though your sin may not be as bad as someone else's by way of human standard, you need to understand that sin will separate you from a holy and a righteous God for all of eternity. You can, you can illustrate it this way. We've talked about this several times here at First Baptist. You can illustrate it this way. If we said, hey, let's all go down to the ocean. We're going to jump in right down here at Long Beach and let's swim to Hawaii. So if we were all going to swim to Hawaii, over 2,000 miles, we're going to swim to Honolulu, Hawaii, we would all jump in and we would all start swimming, right? Now, undoubtedly, there are some in the room that are better swimmers than others. And so maybe you're not that good of a swimmer and you make it like 50 yards out and you go, oh, that's it, that's it, I got to go back. And you turn around, you swim back. Maybe you're like, I really want to go to Hawaii. That sounds like a lot of fun. And so you, man, you, you, you double down, you swim. Let's say you swim out maybe a mile out into the ocean, and then all of a sudden you get, you get tired, your arms wear out, and you drown. Let's say others keep swimming. Man, they go, maybe they're not a mile. They go two miles all the way out. You get two miles off the coast, and then you start hearing this. Dun, dun. There's sharks in those waters. Dun, 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 dun. Some of us die. And then now, let's just say it's me and you, and we swim three miles out. And I look at you and go, wow, I'm tired. I got to go back. I can't go any farther. And you say, no, I'm going to go. I'm going to get all the way to Honolulu, Hawaii. Let's say you can swim six miles out. You swim twice as far as I swim. You may be able to swim six miles into the Pacific Ocean, but I can tell you this. You can't swim to Hawaii. And so it is in trying to get to heaven on our own. You may make it farther than me. You may be a better person than I am. You may be a better person than your neighbor. But listen, friend, you can't, you can't get to heaven on your own. Your good works won't get you to heaven. Your right living won't get you to heaven. Your helping the poor won't get you to heaven. Your feeding the hungry won't get you to heaven. You cannot get to heaven on your own because of your sin. You say, well, that sounds terrible. That's exactly what Jesus saw. Jesus saw a crowd, a multitude of people who were fainting, who were scattered, who were like sheep with no shepherd. They were drowning. They were without hope. They were without help. And the Bible says that when Jesus saw their condition, he was moved with compassion on them. The God of the Bible is a God of compassion. 
The God of the Bible is a God of love. The God of the Bible is a God who does not sit back and is indifferent toward our human condition and toward our sin and toward our limitations. The God of the Bible is a God who so loved you that he sent Jesus to die on the cross for your sin. And many people, when they think about God, they think, well, God is so angry. Or, or, or God is so grumpy. Or God is so mean. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says, for God so loved the world. And God's love for you is different than our love. Our love is object-oriented. We see something that we like, and we go, oh, I like that. I love it. Do we see a car? I love my car. Oh, or we, we see a football team. Oh, I love my football team. Or we, or we see our, our husband, our wife, a spouse. Oh, I love him. Our, our love is object-oriented. We see something over there, and we want it for ourselves, and we turn our love toward it. But God's love is not object-oriented. God's love is subject-oriented. God is love. So why does God love? God loves because he is love. And God is love and he's demonstrated his love for you. And when he sent Jesus to die on the cross for your sin. For God so loved, Jesus sees the lost in their condition. He's moved with compassion. He loves them. And this is why he came to earth. Jesus came to earth because he is love. He is the manifestation he, he's, he's making known God's love. That's what that means. He's making known God's love. How do you know if God loves you? Well, if my circumstances go the way I want, if I get the promotion, if, 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 I, if I get a pay raise, if, if my wife will do this or my kids will do that, then I'll know if God really loves me. No, no, no. How do you know God loves you? God commended His love. God proved His love. God showcased His love. God put His love on display. God commended His love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. You hear that? That while we're lost in our sin, while we were fainting and scattered like sheep with no shepherd, God says, I love you anyway, and I'm sending Jesus to die on the cross for you. This is why Christ came. Because our God is a God of compassion. Have you made that love yours? Before we consider the needs all around the globe, have you made the love of God your own? I'm not asking you if you know about the love of God. I'm asking you this. Have you experienced the love of God? I'm not asking you if you know about Jesus. I'm asking you, do you know Him personally? Not simply do you know facts about Him, but do you know Him as your own? Is forgiveness of sin yours? Have you made Jesus your own? You say, well, pastor, I'd like to make Jesus my own. How do I do that? The Bible says that the way that we make Jesus our own is by putting our faith and trust in him. For by grace are you saved, listen, through faith. So the way that the love of God becomes ours is through our faith in Jesus Christ. And some people this morning would go, well, I'm just not a faith kind of person. I don't have a whole lot of faith. Oh, yeah, you do. You know you had faith this morning? You practiced faith this morning? Did you know that? 
I'll, I'll, I'll prove it to you. When you walked in this morning, you grabbed your seat, you pushed it down, and you know what you did? You just went, and you sat down in your seat. I didn't see, I watched a lot of you sit down, but I didn't see one of you when you put your seat down go, okay, what's this waited for? How long has it been here? Are the standards of 1950 the same as today? Are we sure this seat will hold me? Has anyone tested the seat before I sit? Nobody did that this morning. You walked in, you pushed that seat down, and you went, that's the sound the seat makes when you sit down on it. That's, that's faith. That's what it means to put your faith in Jesus. To take your hope, to take your trust, to take your confidence, to take all of your weight and to just put it onto him. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy that he saved us. What are you counting on to make you right with God? Your good works, it won't cut it. Your religiousness, you don't have enough. What are you counting on to make you right with God? Anything other than Christ is not enough. So have you put your faith in Jesus this morning? Have you put your faith in Jesus? The way that the love of God becomes yours is to put your faith in Jesus. And Jesus is moved with compassion. If you're here this morning and you have put your faith in Jesus, there's been a time in your life where you accepted Christ, you put all your weight onto what Jesus did and what Jesus did for you. If, if that has happened, then let me ask you this, my friend. Are you identifying with Jesus in this way? Are you following Jesus in this way? Are you a person who is identified as compassionate? If we're truly followers of Jesus then we should be people like Jesus. What was Jesus like? Well, the Bible says in this text, Jesus was moved with compassion. When you see the lost around you, when you see the fainting around you, when you see the scattered around you, when you see people in your neighborhood, at your office, on the street, downtown, at the next big event you go to, do you see them as sheep? With no shepherd. E. Stanley Jones was a foreign missionary with a tremendous passion for bringing people to Christ. He was pleading with a group of young people in India one day and he says, I, I wish that you would stand up and tell me why you are not Christians. Why, why will you not become Christian? What, what, what will you do with Christ? What do you think of him? Why will you not follow him? One Indian boy stood up and answered and said, Your Christ, your Christ is wonderful, but you Christians are not like him. What an indictment. Oh no, Christ, he's wonderful. He is love. He's, he is the display of the love of God. Are you and I like him? Christ's mission, what is it marked with? It's marked first with compassion. It's marked second with service. We've got to go quick. It's marked second with service. Look at the text. Look at verse 37. Everybody look at the Bible. Look at verse 37. Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest is plenteous, but the laborers are few. In other words, the harvest 
has been brought to full fruition. The seed, the soil, the work, the farmer, the sun, the water, the weather, all of it has done its work. And the entire crop is ready. It's ripe. And the entire crop, Jesus says, is going to be lost unless the farmers go out into the field and gather in the harvest. And Jesus says there are enough laborers in the harvest. You would think that it would be the other way around, wouldn't you? You would think that the Lord would have said, I have a large, ready army of workers who are eager to go out and bring the lost to me. But people's hearts are hard and they won't receive the gospel. But that's not what he says, is it? And Jesus says that the lost are more eager to receive the gospel than we are to share it. What an indictment against us. No, no, the harvest is ready. The laborers. That's what's few. Very simple question, just by way of application on this point. In, in what way are you and I involved in service for God's kingdom? A, a non-serving Christian is a contradiction in the Bible. You, you can't find a non-serving Christian in the New Testament church. They're serving. This is what we're meant to be doing. Every member a minister... Paul says it this way, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable. Listen, always, listen, always, listen, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So we're, we're to be doing our work, notice, in the Lord. We're supposed to be laboring for the Lord you labor for yourself, you'll get tired. You, you labor for yourself and you'll go, ah, it's not really worth it. Nobody's paying attention. Nobody patted me on the back. You labor for yourself. You can't always abound. And yet this is, what the, this is what Paul says the proper understanding of Christian service is. It's steadfast. It's unmovable. And it's abounding in the work of the Lord. In what way are you and I involved in service for the Lord? That you and I are not just here for ourselves. You don't, you don't, we don't come to church to get out of church what we want. And Jesus works in his church. And Jesus works through the healthy members of the church. And every one of us, every member has something that they can do to help advance the work of the Lord. That's the proper understanding of spiritual giftedness. Who you are is not your spiritual gift. We're talking about this on Wednesday nights. You are not your gift. So I believe one of my gifts is teaching and preaching. It's very easy for a pastor to assume that he is his gift. But what happens if tomorrow my vocal cords are just shot and I can no longer speak? Well, if I see my identity as my gift, guess what? If I can no longer preach well, then I would feel like I'm purposeless. If someone took preaching away from me, I would feel like I had no reason to exist. 
But you must understand, your gift is not who you are. You are a child of the king. You are bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. You are his and he is yours and you can never lose that. But when you get saved, he gives you his spirit. And when he gives you his spirit, he also gives you a gift. The gift is what you do. Can I tell you this? Some people think this, but a spiritual gift is not simply being awesome. That's not a spiritual gift. Talk to people, what's your spiritual gift? My spiritual gift is I am awesome. No, 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 no. That's not a gift. No, it's not in the Bible. Can't find it there. The spiritual gift is what you do in service for the Lord. It's a way that God has gifted you. It's a way that God has gifted you. You want, to mo- you want to know more about your spiritual gifts? You should join us in the middle of the week as we talk through ways to develop and ways to discover your spiritual gift. We'll talk about that this Wednesday with God's help. I'll show you this Wednesday, a very easy formula for how you can use the scripture and you can use the life experiences that God has given to you for you to develop, for you to discover how it is exactly how God has gifted you. You know, most Christians have no idea what their spiritual gift is. They have no idea. And as a result of this, we're just, we're going on in service of the Lord and we're just wearing ourselves out because we are not using the gift that God has given to us to use for him. And listen, it's a spiritual gift. It's not a natural gift. It's not a fleshly gift. It's not a material gift. It's spiritual. It only comes to you by way of the Holy Spirit of God in your life. Most people have no idea how to discover that. And, and those who would, who would have any kind of inclination towards spiritual gifts, they go way out of the way and they go to all kinds of means and extremes that are not found in the Bible. Notice, the laborers are what's needed. That you and I have some part to play. Yours is different from mine, mine is different from yours and that's okay. But you and I have some part to play in service of God's kingdom. What we have here with us this weekend is we have four missionaries with us this weekend who are saying this, my part to play in evangelizing the world, my part to play in the, in, in the evangelization of the lost, in the mission of Jesus, my part to play is to go to Turkey. My part to play is to go to the Ukraine. My part to play is to go to Togo. My part to play is to, is, is to go to the prisons of the United States. My part to play is to do this. This is what I believe God has gifted me, what he's called me, what I'm willing to do. And we should, as a church, be going, wow, we're so thankful for men and women who are willing to do this in service of the Lord, but that does not absolve us of our responsibility. We can't go, shoo, I'm glad I don't have to go to Ukraine. No, 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 we go, here's someone who's willing to go to the Ukraine. Now, what will our part be in helping them in their service of the Lord? This is what we are considering. When you do a faith promise commitment, that's what you're committing to. This will be my part. All of us as members have a part to play. Jesus' mission is marked with, I told you three things. One, compassion. Two, service. Three, last one. Jesus' mission is marked with prayer. Look what he says in verse 38. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Pray. That's the command. It's imperative. Pray. This is what you are to pray for. It's active. 
You're to be praying for laborers. It's a, it's a command, it's an active command, and it is what the Lord tells us ought to be our priority. You know, sometimes when the church needs more workers, we try just about everything except prayer. Make announcements. I talked to somebody one time. I said, how long have you been teaching this class? He said to me, Pastor, I've been teaching this class for 16 years. I said, wow, thank you for your service. Man, you've taught this class for 16 years. That's amazing. He said, yeah, they told me it was supposed to be for four months interim. 16 years later, I'm still in here. Help me. <laughs> I said, no, that's how we get people to sign up. We get, oh, it's only a few short weeks. Five years later, what happened to those weeks, you know? As a church, when we need workers, we try just about anything. But do we pray? Do we pray that God would raise up more Christian workers can I tell you this, friend? All the great moves of God in the Bible begin with prayer. Study it this afternoon. All the great moves of God in the Bible begin with prayer. Sometimes it's a lot of people praying, like in Acts chapter 1 and in Acts chapter 2. Sometimes it's just one individual praying, like in Nehemiah chapter 1. Sometimes that prayer is started because they're experiencing a trial, like an exodus. Sometimes that prayer is started because they feel conviction of their sin, like in Psalms 51. But all the great moves of God begin with prayer. All the great moves of God in two ways, corporately and personally. You want God to move in your own individual life? I'll tell you where to begin. In prayer. Need help in your marriage? Pray. Need help with your kids? Pray. But it's not just personally, it's also corporately. It's in the church. The scripture is clear that faith only comes by hearing the word of God. Romans chapter 10. That's why we preach the way that we preach. Faith is built on the word of God. Listen to Romans chapter 10. Listen to it. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So how is someone saved? They call upon the name of the Lord. Watch. How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe on him in whom they have not heard? The necessity of hearing. How shall they hear without a preacher? Someone comes and tells them. How shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace, that bring glad tidings of good things, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? Listen. So faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So, so God made the source of faith the preaching of his word. The way our faith increases is by spending time in the word of God. But just as God made the source of faith 
hang on the preaching of the word. He has also made the success of preaching to hang on prayer. Catch that. It's very important. God has made the source of faith to hang on the preaching of the word of God. But he has also made the success of preaching to hang on prayer. Listen to it in Ephesians chapter 6. Paul says, Pray that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. So Paul says, hey, listen, I'm, go I'm going to go preach and I'm going to take, take the gospel into all areas of the world. So what should our responsibility be? Pray for me. Pray for me as I preach. Pray that I'll preach boldly. Pray that I'll preach with clarity. Pray that I will make known the mystery of the gospel. Colossians chapter 4, wherewithal or, or, or withal praying also for us that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in bonds. Do you hear what Paul says? Paul says, I, I need a door. I need an opportunity. I'm going to walk through it and preach. I, I, I want people to have faith as I preach. How does that happen? Paul says to the Colossian church, pray for me as I preach. Romans chapter 10, verse number 1. Romans 10, 13 is where you have the verse, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Before you ever get to verse 13, you have to read verse 1. Guess what Paul says in verse 1? My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. You hear what he says? Yes, the preaching of the word of God is necessary for faith. That's true. You cannot eliminate that. But... As we preach God's word, what empowers our preaching is the prayers of God's people. So our, our work in mission, marked by compassion, marked by service, marked by prayers... Paul prayed for the nation of Israel to be saved. Stephen prayed for the salvation of those who were executing him. Daniel prayed for the salvation of his people. Hezekiah prayed for the salvation of wicked and unfaithful people. Samuel prayed for his people. Moses prayed for them. It's not an uncommon thing in the Bible. Why prayer? Two reasons. You have this in your outline. You can write it down. Two reasons. Why pray? First, because prayer strengthens our hands. Prayer strengthens our hands. We don't have time this morning, but you could read it for yourself. 2 Timothy chapter 1. God gifted Timothy for service. That's what the Bible says. But Timothy was allowing his gifts to lay unused because he was afraid. And so Paul tells him that any kind of fear that paralyzes us from active Christian service is not from God, but otherworldly. And Paul says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but God has given us strength, compassion, wisdom. God has given us power, clarity, a sound mind. God has given us all things that are necessary to do the work that He has called us to do. So, why pray? 
because prayer strengthens our hands for the ministry that God has given to us. There are some in the room this morning, you know, you know what your spiritual gift is and you know you ought to be using it in service. But for whatever reason, you're like Timothy, you're allowing it to lay unused. You're thinking, well, perhaps I'm not ready. I don't know enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm not capable enough. What's the answer to that? What's God's prescription for that? The answer is pray. Prayer puts you in a posture of dependence before God. When you pray, what you're recognizing is you're recognizing you can't. That's what you're saying. Because if you and I could, well, we wouldn't need God. So prayer puts you in a posture of dependence before God. Prayer allows you access to the resources of God. And prayer gives you the strength that you need to do the work that God has called you to do. Prayer, I told you, does two things. Prayer, first of all, strengthens our hands. But second, prayer softens our hearts. You notice the progression? Look at verse 37. The harvest is plenteous. Laborers are what's few. Verse 38. So pray. Pray the Lord of the harvest will send forth laborers into the harvest. Look at verse 10. Or chapter 10 rather. Look at verse 1. And when he had called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them power. Look, verse 2, verse 4, verse 5. What's he doing? He's sending out the 12 who he has empowered. Do you see what's happening? The end of chapter 9, Jesus says that there's a great need. And the need is workers. So pray for workers. And in chapter number 10, Jesus takes the very same people who are praying for workers and Jesus makes them, guess what? Workers. You see? The most effective prayers are those that are prayed by people who are willing to let God use them to be a part of the answer. Oftentimes, when we pray for something, God uses us in some way to be a part of the answer. God, pray for workers and missionaries to go all over the globe. The world certainly needs it. But God, just let it be him and let it be her. Let it be them. And let it be them. It's not me. Those kind of prayers don't get answered. The kind of prayers that are most effective are prayers where we willingly submit ourselves to God and say, Lord, send laborers. Demonstrate your love and your compassion to the world. Use us in service and Pray. 
pray for more workers.